On April 13, 2015, Ken Winston, lecturer in ethics at the Harvard Kennedy School, presented a seminar at the Ash Center on his new book titled Ethics and Public Life, Good Practitioners in a Rising Asia. Christopher Robichaud, lecturer in ethics and policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, gave a response. The seminar was moderated by Tony Sage, director of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Okay, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on this uh, first day of spring that we've had. Um, and of course, as you know, the reason we're here is to really celebrate a wonderful book uh, by Ken Winston with case studies that range from a doctor in Singapore through Jesuits in China to a Western journalist in Cambodia. And from that, Ken distills and draws some conclusions about moral competence uh, in public life with relationship to Asia. I think it's probably a book that could only be written at the Kennedy School um, by someone who's engaging with students and uh, with colleagues at the Kennedy School. And, uh, and it shows very importantly uh, how we have to take seriously context when making these decisions that inform professional life. I think, to me, one other factor that makes this book extremely important in the cases that uh, Ken has developed is that, as you know, the Kennedy School has become increasingly international school. We have almost 50% of our students uh, who are not uh, American. And as a result, I think simply teaching to them what a rational option might look like or what an option from an ideal world uh, might look like doesn't really cut it. And I think we're still very much in the mode of teaching as if the world was really flat. And clearly what Ken's uh, book shows us is that it's clearly not uh, flat and that one has to take context, culture, background, into uh, thinking about these decisions. So I like the idea of the, of the phrase that uh, Ken uses of practical ethics uh, rather than applied ethics, which begins with practices and judgments uh, derived from these real situations that I was talking about. Um, one thing that I did think about when reading the book, which was somewhat independent of the cases and the questions around uh, moral competence, choice, and professional ethics was that I was really reading your section on the Jesuits. And it really raised in my mind the question of why did Buddhism and Marxism uh, penetrate into China, but why didn't the Jesuits? And what does this tell us about your addendum when talking about potential for rule of law, uh, civil society, other concepts that we have deem or hold to be important in the West. I don't think that's a, a topic for discussion today, but as I was reading it, it really triggered some ideas in, in my mind. So the process uh, for this afternoon is that Ken will talk for about 30 minutes or so to introduce uh, his key ideas. Then Chris uh, Robeshaw, who's a lecturer in ethics and uh, policy here at the Kennedy School, will respond for about 10 minutes or so, and then We'll have the opportunity uh, to open up to questions, comments uh, from people here this afternoon, and we'll round it all off with a nice reception. So, Ken. Um, well, first I want to thank Tony. Can, can you hear me all right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I think Tony doesn't know is that I began my academic career I won't say how many years ago, quite a, quite a long time ago, um, by spending a great deal of time at the Center for the Study of Law and Society in Berkeley. And fortunately, we have someone, Bob Kagan, here in the audience who has spent some time himself at, at the Center for Law and Society. So this, this was when I was just beginning as an academic. And this was a small enclave of academics <clears throat> in a large university um, who, who created this congenial, stimulating environment for academic work, which forever after, for me, was the model of how to be an academic. 
And I was delighted when I was able half a dozen years ago to come to the Ash Center and have that experience again. And so it's been great for me to, to have been here and Tony is responsible for having created uh, this, this uh, environment in which that kind of thing is possible. So I, well, I, I want to express my appreciation. <laughs> you guys created the environment. Um, what, what I'm going to do is um, show you some slides. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do a formal presentation. I want to try to keep this informal. And I picked out some slides that I like, um, which may or may not actually work uh, to, to convey some ideas. But I will try to identify a few of the key ideas that are in the book so you get, get some sense of it. Um, and uh, we can have Q&A afterwards after Chris uh, provides some comments um, for the discussion. So let me begin with the cover. Um, you, you know that you can't tell a book by its cover. Um, this cover, which I actually like, I, I quite like this cover. The, the color doesn't come out quite as well on the slide, but, but it's nicer on the book. Um, the cover was the result of some extended negotiation with the publisher. Uh, I wanted to use one of my photographs for the cover. And the publisher wanted to use a, a drawing that was, that was done by its design shop. And you can see that the publisher won that debate uh, uh, with this design. Uh, as I say, it, I, I think it's OK for the cover. But I want to show you the photograph that I had sent that inspired this cover, which is a little different. You, you, you see the difference? <laughs> um, what I like about this photograph is that it's much more disorderly, much more incomplete. Um, you, you don't quite know where things are going and what's been left out and why some things have been put in. Uh, the, the tops of, of the buildings look like they're unfinished. Some of the buildings have connections, but, but other buildings don't have connections. So, so the, different, the difference in image, uh, I think, is quite striking. Th this is a set of buildings that's in Singapore um, that was designed by uh, Daniel Liebeskind the architect who was the initial architect for the World Trade Center uh, in New York. He was eventually displaced uh, by, by someone else. But um, this is not uncharacteristic of his, his kind of work. But it seemed to me it represented much more of the kind of disorderliness that I was interested in capturing in the stories that I tell in the book. Because I do think the life of practitioners is quite disorderly. And, and one of the, the basic competences you need to develop is to manage disorder. Uh, and and each, of, each of the cases illustrates that. Another uh, photograph I had thought about, which I didn't think worked quite as well, was this. <clears throat> See, I had a choice between trying to represent good practitioners or trying to represent rising Asia. And it's the rising Asia that, that went out. But this, this I was thinking about with regard to good practitioners. This is a statue of a scholar official, a Chinese scholar official. It's outside the Asia Museum, also in Singapore. Um, and so this was one of the mandarins, one of the bureaucrats in the Chinese government during the dynastic period who uh, essentially ran the government. And I've been, as some of you know, I've been kind of fascinated with the scholar officials because they were trained in Confucianism. In other words, they were trained in ethics. And then they went into the government and they ran the government. And the Confucian tradition was that all you needed for running a government was a training in ethics. 
You didn't need anything else. Now, at the Kennedy School, we don't believe that. In fact, sometimes it's hard to find the ethics part in what we teach. But, but we have a more complete idea, let us say, of, of what's needed by way of developing skills for, for running government. But it struck me that this idea that ethics might be enough, or at least an essential component, for um, knowing how to run government was quite important. So I'm particularly interested in, in the scholar officials because given the training they had, when they did enter government, they had to realize they didn't know uh, enough uh, on the basis of their training. So how did they cope with that? And that's one of the research projects that I, I plan to pursue as I go forward, is, is how you actually deal with the real world when your training has been in ethics. It, the, the scholar officials faced uh, many dangers uh, in their lives, especially, especially during the, the Ming Dynasty, but th really throughout their history. And I thought I would represent that with this, um, this slide. This is a good official pickled by an evil king. Um, this, this drawing is actually uh, allegedly in the Yenching Library. I, I went over there and I asked them about it and nobody seemed to know where it was. But it's supposed to be somewhere. So you see that the, the good official has been cut up and put in the vase and pickled by the, by the evil king. So there definitely were dangers to trying to tell the ruler what the ethical thing to do was. Let me start with some oddities about the book. And I've put these in the, in the form of questions. Why Asia? The framework, which I will say a little, about, uh, a little bit about later, the framework that I use for talking about ethical problems is meant to be general, can be applied across societies, across, across countries or cultures or traditions. But all the cases in this book, there were five cases, they're all based in Asia. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is quite personal. I've spent the last 15 years traveling to Asia, being involved in a variety of programs, particularly executive education programs for government officials in Asia, several different countries. I've been learning a lot about Asia as as I was doing this. So it was, it was a kind of focus in my mind for personal reasons. But I also think that what's going on in Asia, and this is the idea of the rising Asia, what's going on is you've got a region that's in transition in which people are groping, trying to figure out how they hold on to the things they regard as really important within their own tradition, but at the same time accommodate to the, new, to the modern world? How do they interact with people from other parts of the world in ways that they haven't before? And what does that do to any kind of adjustment they may make in what they regard as most valuable? So you can see the Asian countries as experiments in morality in the sense that they're looking for the right hybrid, the right combination of traditional values and new values that will produce some coherence to the life that they are coming to experience. So that's a more intellectual reason why I think the Asian countries are interesting. Why case studies? Um, I, I will say some things about this as we go forward, but. But as I said, the book it does consist of five case studies. There are five stories which, which constitute the bulk of the book. And in each one, the narrative of what happens is quite important. And the narrative is combined with my reflections on what's going on. So if it works well, there's a kind of seamlessness to the narrative and the, and the reflections as you go through. I've tried to choose each of the five carefully in the sense that they each exemplify certain important qualities 
that practitioners need to pay attention to with regard to ethical issues. But it's also part of my, let's, let's call it my conceit, that the actual experience of reading through in detail the struggles to do some ethical thing is what the reader needs in order to get the right sense of what it takes to act ethically. You actually need the experience of going through in detail what some practitioner faces in trying to make the right decision. So cases are very important for that reason. Strategic ethics. I do make a point in the book that practical ethics is strategic ethics. The question, what should I do, to put it most starkly, is always a strategic question. It's always, in a sense, a political question. Because when you decide what to do, you need to take account of where you are, what resources you have available, what authority you have to act in public, as well as what principles or ideals or rules might be helpful in thinking about your situation. So there's a variety of things that need to be taken into account, and one needs to adjust these different elements. I'll say again more about that in a moment. But, but you're strategizing all the time. And, and in, in the book, as you go through the case studies, you see the, the practitioner strategizing about what, what to do. So does this mean that I'm anti-theory, as I've often been accused of? Well, sort of. Um, uh, I'm, I'm willing to admit that. Um, I, I tend to think that ethical theory is not very helpful for practitioners. Um, one might contrast that with being pragmatic, although some people say, well, pragmatism is just another theory. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to argue that point. There are some major figures that have been important for me. And over the years in, in the ethics course, I've I've uh, often assigned John Rawls, Machiavelli, and Confucius, not, not as theorists, though, so much as, as people who provide advice for practitioners, who provided orientation. Um, Rawls, I find particularly helpful in thinking about the relationship between personal beliefs and professional duties. Machiavelli. I find particularly helpful for making sure you don't forget that life is political, that ethical life is political. And Confucius, particularly important because the focus is neither on individuals nor on institutions, but on relationships. And that seems to me the right focus to have in discussing ethical issues, to think about getting relationships right. So if we get a chance, I'll, I'll say more about that. The other thing I want to emphasize, this is a class from about 10 years ago, I think, 12 years ago, one of, one of my smaller classes. The other thing I want to emphasize is that I learned an enormous amount from my students. Almost all of my students were mid-career. And they've been out in the world. And they've had these experiences. They have much better sense of how the world works than I do. And I had to learn from them how the world works. I could provide some vocabulary, a framework. We, we could have a genuine dialogue. But it really was a dialogue. We were learning, we were learning from, from each other. And what I have done over the years is to give my students the assignment of t at the end of the course of telling me a story from their experience, some ethical problem that they encountered where they had real difficulty and had to struggle with it. Tell me that story and then retrospectively do an analysis of it. The way they've been doing analyses of the cases that we've discussed over the course of the semester. But this time it's their own story and, and they have to figure out what was going on. What, what do I think about that now that, that I look at it uh, in retrospect? So out of this exercise, which I started quite some time ago, um, I've gotten some wonderful stories 
from, from my students. And when, when I thought it was particularly appropriate, I worked with the student to turn them into cases that, that I could use in the classroom. So I, I call these memoir cases because they, they uh, are memoirs from the students. They're told from a personal point of view by, by the students. Um, and the first one that I did was way back in 1991. It was kind of shocking to realize it, it, was, it was that far back. And the most recent was, was last year. Um, so in the book, three of the five chapters are memoir cases. They're based on memoir cases. The, the first chapter, The Doctor in Singapore, The Gift of Life, one of my students, The Prison Master's Dilemma, one of my students, his story, and chapter four, The Woman in the Corridor, uh, a memoir case. Uh, again, in the, with each of them, they're combined with my reflections on the stories. The fifth chapter is somewhat like a memoir case in that it's based on a, an interview it's, this is about Aruna Roy, who is a political activist in India. And um, I invited, invited her here to Harvard at the time of the celebration of, the, I think it was the 20th anniversary of the innovation program. She came, she came for, for that, to participate in that. And Harkon Fung and I uh, interviewed her. And so we have this very extensive interview, and it was just full of terrific material. Um, and I used that interview as the basis for that chapter uh, on, on her. So the only one that's different from those four is the, the chapter on the missionaries in China. Um, and, and that's because it was just too good a story to pass up. I mean, I just felt uh, I, I had to use that. It focuses particularly on Matteo Ricci, so it does have, again, a focus on a specific individual. Um, but, but, of course, I did not interview him, and he did not write his own story. Um, but uh, I, this was in the 17th century. Uh, this, this has happened. So, so that's the material for, for the book. Very roughly speaking, the first two chapters deal with the issue of the relation between personal belief and, and professional and public duty, and how conflicts can arise, and what one needs to think about to resolve those kinds of conflicts. The third and fourth um, primarily focus on the clash of views of beliefs and ideas with people from different cultures, and how do they handle, how do they handle those kinds of situations. And, and the fifth is directly on someone, Aruna Roy, who was a democratic activist. So that's a way of bringing out the theme about the development of democracy in Asia, which is a constant in my thinking about what's happening in Asia. You know, in some places it's more or less inchoate, uh, it's emergent, but not always quite evident. It's certainly precarious in a number of places. But but as I think about rising Asia, um, my focus is on, is on the emergence of democracy. This was the scheme I developed to try to, to, to bring these all together. I actually worked on the scheme for quite a number of years before I was satisfied with, with what I produced. And I thought translating it into Chinese might help, but it didn't. <laughs> because I don't know Chinese. So. It turned out this was too philosophical. I was, I was trying to overcome my training in philosophy in order to think practically about ethics. This was still too philosophical. Here's the English, the English version uh, of this. I'd like some of what was going on here, particularly the separating the moral from the ethical, I thought was really important in order to be able to see how those things could come into conflict with, with each other. Oh, I. I I hit this by accident. Anyway, I gradually try to simplify. So here I am trying to simplify. And I've got three basic categories. Personal integrity, common morality, professional ethics. And eventually I filled this out in this way. Three categories, 
of considerations that are important to focus on in thinking about ethical conflicts as they are actually experienced by practitioners without being too structured or too rigid about the ways in which these things interact. I mean, that, that's, that's what I was trying, trying to get. So simply making lists seemed to me um, the, the right way to do that and just making some elementary distinctions between, between these three areas. And roughly speaking, these are the, the personal contribution into eth ethical problems, shared ideas, values, and, and rules, and then professional, the professional uh, dimension. So um, I'm not going to say much about this. I think, I think Chris might pick up on this in his remarks, and we can, we can go back to this in the, in the Q&A. But I'll just leave, leave it there in, in that form for you. The other crucial methodological element was the strategic triangle. And I, you know, being around the Kennedy School, I have to mention the strategic triangle, otherwise I don't, I don't get my points. Uh, the, um, it, it was thinking about the strategic triangle that was quite crucial to me. And Mark Moore is not here. He's, he's really the guru on the strategic triangle. And his, his work on the strategic triangle was, was quite important to me. But I found that in thinking about ethics using the strategic triangle, I needed to push it further than Mark does. Um, the, the basic idea of the strategic triangle is that for decision making, there are, there are three legs of the triangle you need to think about and kind of bring together in some kind of equilibrium in order to come up with the right decision. What are your, what's your capacity? What resources do you have available for doing one thing or another? What's the public value that you're trying to achieve? And then what kind of authority or legitimacy do you have? What support can you mobilize for acting in, in a particular way? Applying the triangle means, means adjusting each of these legs of the triangle to each other to come up with the right decision. And my, my contribution was basically thinking more about the legitimacy side um, using this term authorizing environment, which is very common among, among my Kennedy School colleagues. Thinking, trying to think about what it is exactly in the environment that authorizes a practitioner to act in one way or another. What, what kind of guidance is provided by the norms or principles that are prevalent in the environment that the practitioner is working in. So um, that, that's where I really pushed uh, the strategic triangle. Finally, in the last chapter, I draw together the threads of, this, of the stories in order to identify five attributes. Now, I do, I do want to say that, you know, at, at the Kennedy School, we're taught as faculty that we need to give a takeaway to the students. The students need something they can kind of carry with them. What, what did I learn in this class? So you have a takeaway. This last chapter is kind of the takeaway uh, for the book, but it's really no substitute for the chapters themselves, the stories themselves. It's, it's just a way of kind of bringing together some larger ideas about moral competence in democratic societies. And what I do is identify these five competences, which are only roughly related to the five chapters. And for some of them, they're pretty, pretty well correlated, but for others, um, not so. So let, let me just say a word briefly about each of these, and again, Chris might, might uh, say something about this. With, with civility, and, and here in the background is uh, the influence of Rawls. Uh, with civility, part of the idea is that we all have passionate beliefs, particularly those of us who, who think about the public sphere. There are things we want to do, and, and we're all committed to changing the world in a certain way that we think will make it for the better. But the mere fact that we have passionate beliefs doesn't mean anyone else should share those beliefs. It, just because we have believed something passionately doesn't make a claim on anybody else that they should have the same. In fact, very often is the case that other people have other passions and, and want to do different things. 
So you need to work at mobilizing support from others. And in order to do that, you need to have a set of ideas that are intelligible to other people that they could buy into, that they can understand and sign on to, which means you need to talk with other people in a way that is accessible to them. So the idea of civility is that you respect others as intelligent fellow citizens who can join you in agreeing on public policies. That's the, that's the basic idea of civility. Prudence is the political element, realizing that the world is disorderly and that you need to think strategically and that you need to worry about what resources you have and what authority you have. So that's the prudence idea. Double reflection, which comes up particularly in the middle cases, is, is the idea that you need to be aware that other people may have a different idea of what you're thinking about. They may think about it differently from the way you're thinking about it. And you might need to realize that your idea is contestable, that people might have counter arguments, that they might have better ideas even. So this kind of double reflection that somebody, someone might think differently and that your idea might not be the correct idea, um, that, that's what I have in mind by double reflection. Respect is, in, in a way it underlies all of what I've said so far, it's respect for other, other people as responsible agents, as people who can also make decisions just as you can and who can participate as equals um, in making policy and organizing society. And finally, proficiency in social architecture. This is the idea that it's important to have the skill to design institutions to embody the values that you think are important. Um, and, and this is particularly important, I think, when you're thinking about democratic institutions because what you're worried about mostly is how do people participate? Do they have meaningful participation in the institutions in society? And so you need to pay a lot of attention to the way institutions are designed in order to make that happen. So that, as I say, is, is the takeaway, and that's the story. So thank you very much. That's wonderful. Very Chris? Thanks. Um, so I think I wanted to start by just, uh, Ken is very humble. And so I would like to talk him up a little bit here. Can you hear me OK? This? Yeah. So uh, I, it, it's hard to exaggerate the impact that his course has had here at the Kennedy School. It's been taught since 19, you've been teaching it since 1986. Uh, it is regularly called out as one of the most important courses that a lot of the students who have come here have taken. Tremendous amount of feedback over the years from uh, mid-careers. I myself was just exposed this past year to a student who took the course and uh, faced an issue, uh, life and death sort of issues, who reached out to Ken and to others and said that, you know, he was thinking through this in a way that was deeply influenced by having taken uh, Ken's class before. Um, so I, I think that this, this book comes out of a course here that has had amazing impact on uh, of the professional students that we, we, uh, we train here, amazing impact on the way that they deliberate uh, once, they, once they leave this institution. And there are some uh, pedagogical advances that Ken has made that are, are really brilliant. No, uh, the biggest one of which I think is using the students as one of the primary resources here, you know, realizing that you have year after year uh, a, a group of students who have amazing stories to share and you know helping them come together and think about their cases from the ethical standpoint and then crafting some of them to share with everyone else. I think what I want to do is, and so I've had an opportunity to work with uh, Ken this past semester on uh, the last run of Ethics in Public Life that, that he's been teaching and it was uh, deeply informative and I've been trying to bring some of the insights from that into uh, the core ethics class that we teach for the MPP students. I'm going to just talk briefly about uh, the best compliment you can pay to someone is to take what they've done and work with it and then <clears throat> move beyond it a little bit. And so I'm going to talk a little bit today about how I'm going to bring some of this in and, and some of the things that I thought could, we could use what Ken's doing and take it into slightly different directions. 
I think that this is a, a very important way to, and what I'm pointing to here is this, this idea of moral competence, is a very important way to approach the teaching of ethics at the professional level. The way I would describe this uh, is to embody a kind of virtue ethics approach to pedagogy. Now I know that Ken and I uh, might have differences of, in terms of theory, and I know it, there's some resistance here, but m these moral competences uh, can be viewed as the cultivation of kinds of, of virtues, uh, at least as the term has been used uh, in, in philosophy for some time. And I think that it's, uh, it's a brilliant insight to consider that one of the ways to teach the virtues is by way of showing people exercising them, practicing them in uh, an engaged setting. Um, where I, I want to go back to the one that was rejected, yeah. <laughs> um, where, where I think that we can move forward though, so if you, read, if you read what Ken has written in the introduction and conclusion to his book, which is where I spent some time with, um, there is a strong sense that practical ethics should be distinguished from applied ethics. That applied ethics is too philosophical, too theory-laden, and not entirely useful to practitioners. And it's to be contrasted with practical ethics, which Ken has been talking to us about now, which, looks, um, which, looks, which is organized along these three dimensions. What I want to suggest is that the pendulum might have swung a little bit too far in the other direction. I think that Ken is absolutely right to focus on the teaching of, as what I would call them, the virtues, and that the case-based method is an extraordinary way of doing so. But maybe this is my, maybe I haven't uh, sloughed off the shackles of uh, theoretical philosophy. But I think that there, there is still some very important space out there for what we would call applied ethics. If we understand that as being, uh, the normative assessment of public policy that informs practitioners in what they are going to do in their very specific cases. I'm thinking of cases like Edward Snowden. I'm thinking of cases like Bruce Hayes from Pennsylvania who pushes back on a gay marriage law. I'm thinking of cases of public officials who, as part of what they have to do, assess the policies that they're either being asked to advance or they're being asked to uh, or push up or they're, they're considering pushing up against at a level that's a little bit up here. Edward Snowden first starts, we all, I'm familiar with Snowden and, and his whistleblowing. Snowden starts off by saying, I think that this policy, the NSA's policy, is unjust, unfair, an inappropriate balance of, um, of freedoms along with security. And that's part of the conversation that then leads him to the messy business of deciding to, you know, disingenuously join an organization in order to spill data. I teach another case that's about Bruce Hayes from uh, Pennsylvania who has handed down uh, a, a policy from the state of Pennsylvania that says you are not allowed to marry gay couples. He can hand out marriage licenses and he says I think that this is unconstitutional, that it violates certain freedoms. I am going to hand out marriage licenses and just see what happens. So I do think that somewhere to be included in this is training in the normative assessment of public policies that happens a little higher up. That said, I think that Ken is uh, really great to be focusing on cases and I just want to talk about two other ways that we can take this. One of which, which he was so kind to let me experiment with in this class and I really do appreciate it, was simulations. So the next step from reading a case and seeing how someone else is making decisions is to put students into a case and have them make those decisions themselves. It's a real challenge because you don't want to actually create catastrophic ethical situations for, I mean, maybe I do quietly. I don't like to advertise that too much. But uh, you know, generally, you're not supposed to want to do these things. So you have to keep it at a certain removed level. But it is really interesting to see if you can build some simulations where students on the spot have to say, all right, here's where I stand. And if you can do it well, craft consequences for those decisions right then and there. I think there's some tremendous learning to happen there. The other thing that I think this, this should be complemented with is increasing research in moral psychology. I think that if we are going to build a story about exercising the virtues in real-life situations when people are you know, wrestling with a lot of messiness, then part of that has to be informed by what the sciences are not telling us you know, happens when we try to engage uh, with, in moral reasoning that way. Uh, this was not really even possible to do 10, 15 years ago with any degree of confidence, but more and more we're getting a really nice picture about how we actually reason, morally speaking, in these cases. How about we can be pulled in different directions, 
that if I'm just giving you a bunch of numbers and telling you to make a decision, you're likely to think more like a consequentialist. If I'm putting you in front of someone, you're likely to think more like a non-consequentialist. This is never going to settle what the truth of the matter is, but it is going to make us aware of the various ways that we can be pulled and influenced in our reasoning by factors that may be happening right underneath the surface. And I think that's really important to know when you're telling practitioners, look, you need to look for these things. You need to look out for these things as you're engaging in, in moral deliberation. Um, besides that, I think that it would be much more rewarding to have a long Q&A to engage this. I'll just say that I have come away from teaching two sections of ethics. This was the last day, the uh, MPP students. I taught several of the cases that are in this book, and they ranked as amongst the most beloved of the ones that, and I just asked my students, and they ranked as most, most beloved, including, especially uh, the prison master's dilemma, dilemma was just off the charts. Everyone absolutely adored that case. So uh, I think we owe Ken another round of applause for just the amazing work that he's done teaching ethics here for many years. Um, I'm Richard Parker, and I'm an economist, so I know almost nothing about ethics. Um, but I was trying to think in the wake of Ferguson about the need to change power in a society like ours, uh, and to also satisfy uh, pictures that people hold in their minds of what an ethical society should look like and how it ought to behave. And it's hard for me to imagine how uh, civility, prudence, or respect are instrumental virtues in getting there, given the contentious nature of American society, that it requires a kind of disorderly incivility of protest. It requires a lack of prudence in the sense of pushing harder against someone's established set of beliefs and norms. And it, at times uh, in, entails what I'm sure is felt by many people, because they report feeling it, a lack of respect in terms of accusations about police behavior or one community versus another. So how, in a practical ethical sense, do you teach students how, how to engage in practical changes of power and perception in a society when that seems to be such an important thing to do? And I, I, I haven't read the book, so I apologize. That, that's a good question. Um, what's particularly uh, appropriate or relevant to that question is the last chapter on Aruna Roy because um, she, she engages in protest politics. Uh, she understands perfectly the need to disrupt things, um, to, you know, to sit down in the middle of the road and stop things from happening and, and, and that sort of thing. She, she employs a variety of what we might call Gandhian techniques. Uh, without necessarily being committed to everything Gandhi was committed to as a way of justifying that. But the techniques are, are quite important for her, and she, and she employs them uh, quite effectively um, in trying to mobilize communities in rural Rajasthan. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the need, to realize the need for engaging in, in that kind of activity. Um, so it is a little misleading when I talk about respect here because the respect is shown primarily for the people she's mobilizing to try to get them to be active and equal participants in the process. That, those are the people she's, who have previously been excluded from all, from all of that, who, you know, who've been left out, who've been oppressed in a variety of ways. She wants to bring them in and, and, and she wants to listen to them to see how they see their problems and, and what they think would be appropriate things to do and so on. It's the people in power that you might say she's confrontational to. And therefore, in that sense, you might say some, some lack of respect. But, but she's less worried about the effects on them because she knows they can handle themselves. The, you know, she's not worried about, about them. May, may I jump in on this one? Yeah. Can I just jump in for a second to I just fill this in? Um, there's another case that uh, Ken teaches that I brought over to the MPPs that, that speaks to just this point, the Nelson Mandela case. And I, I guess what I'm saying is this list is, is not exhaustive, probably. What that case focuses on, which I think is awesome, is Mandela asking the hard question, should our principle of nonviolence that we've adopted so far, should we walk away from it? Should we abandon it? And behind that is this question of, is this a moral principle that's binding to us forever, or is it a tactic? Has it been one tactic amongst others, and we need to change tactics now? 
And I think that, you know, to appreciate Ken's approach is to see him wrestle with this question and ask this really challenging issue, which is, do I, it, how do I think strategically about this now? And the really hard idea of sometimes abandoning a principle that you thought was an identifying principle for yourself or for your group. That, that's all I wanted to. Yeah, just the follow-up was that I'm in the midst of reading this book, which is the correspondence between Stalin and Roosevelt in the Second World War. And so I've been thinking about ethics, instrumentality, and the like, as you might imagine. And so then this added question of the role and uses of violence and the ethics of when to use violence are very much here. So, and you haven't said a word about violence so far. And so just if you could say something in your schema about what, where is violence in this? Well, I, I, I do think that Chris just pointed to it. Um, he referred to the Nelson Mandela case, which, which uh, I used in the class. It's not in the book. I mean, cause I, there are only five cases in the book. I, I can't cover every topic uh, in, in this book. And, and as Chris emphasized, the list of competences is just a short list. It's not meant to be definitive. It's, it, there, there are many other competences that are, that are important. But the, the upshot of Mandela's decision, I mean, what's so important about the Mandela case is here is someone who is a paragon of moral virtue, you know, the moral leader uh, par excellence in, in the recent times. In his autobiography, um, he talks about the period in which he needed to decide whether to engage in terrorism. And he's quite clear that it's terrorism that he's thinking about. And he goes through the argument and says, you know, we've, we've tried all the other forms of protest. We gradually, we gradually escalated and they weren't effective. In fact, if anything, things have gotten worse as, as a result. So what are we left with if we're going to fight this oppression? And he comes out with an argument in favor of terrorism. So um, it, it, you really have to take that seriously when it's coming from such a source. But that, that's how it comes out. Yeah, Matthias Rissner, I also teach ethics here, and I share all the admiration that Chris also has for, <coughs> for Ken. Um, I have a question, though, on, the, uh, on your stance on theory. I think you are needlessly harsh on theory. So as somebody who thinks of himself as contributing the occasional bit of philosophical theory, I have absolutely no issue with anything that you say here. So these are great things to have in the classroom, uh, very worthy subjects of uh, reflection, certainly at a, at a professional school, tremendously important for a democratic polity. But it's not an either-or picture, right? So this, these are the personal virtues that people should develop. But let me just give you a couple of quick examples how easily we get deeply into theory territory, which should be thought of, to my mind, as supplementary to this and not as, as adversarial or competitive. So um, Chris teaches a class on economic justice here. I will start teaching a class on economic justice in the undergraduate general education curriculum next year. Why? Well, because there's this big debate about the 1%, the Occupy movement, debates about economic distribution. There's Greg Menkeef up in the yard who teaches one of the biggest classes in undergraduate curriculum, and one of the things he includes there is why the wage differentials that have generated much of the inequality we see is deeply deserved on the side of those who hold the upper end of that. Now, in response to that, you do need both economic theory and philosophical theory about you know, dis distributive justice, and you get there within two minutes of thinking about this, and None of this is by itself helping you with that. So civility is all good, but it's very important. But we need the substance of arguments, and not everybody needs to spend you know, every week some time on that, but it's important that it's there. Second example, uh, since this is about Asia, um, the debate about human rights. So of course we need to deal with that in a civilized, respectful way. But is human rights a paradigm that we should be promoting as a vision of uh, world, as the ethical blueprint for world governance or not? Hugely important question in connection with the rise of China, since China doesn't buy the basic premise behind all that. It's a theoretical argument. Can human rights be justified? Are they compatible with Confucianism, for example? And one quick last example, um, economists like to tell us 
that in the trade domain there is not much space for considerations of fairness because there's all this stuff about competitive advantage and everybody individually makes a decision to get involved and they have rationally good reason to do. Where is the fairness consideration? Philosophers have to deal with that and explain why there is huge space in the regulation of an international system of rules for considerations of distributive justice that lead us to considerations of fairness and trade. So all of that, I think, in a globalizing world, hugely important. You're not committed to rejecting any of that, but I'm a bit surprised. <laughs> you know, maybe you got burned on that some <laughs> 30 years ago, but it's, it's not really necessary to pick a fight with a theorist, given that there's no reason for a theorist, I think, to disagree with the significance of anything you've done. Um, I, I uh, agree that um, I don't want to pick fights with theorists. Um, it, it's probably a losing proposition for me to, to pick fights with theorists. So, so I, I tend to just ignore them. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, they, they, they can do what they want to do, and, and that's fine, and, and they, have, they have a perfectly appropriate place in the academy to, to do their kind of thing. The question for me is, is it helpful to practitioners? And there, I think about those issues in a, in a very different way. I, th th this could take too long, but let me, let me just pick up on one of your examples. The, the human rights example. So, so what's the right way to think about human rights when you're thinking about the authorizing environment of a practitioner, a specific practitioner in a specific place who needs to make a specific decision? How, how should that person be thinking about human rights? Well, very much depends on the environment. What, what are the prevailing views within that environment. It could well be informed by certain ideas of human rights. How is that manifested? Often it's manifested in the relevant law in the particular country that the, that the practitioner is operating in. In, in uh, the first case, uh, Henry's case, gift of life, the right to life as a human right is a crucial consideration. And, and Henry's kind of slow to kind of bring this in as a, as a crucial consideration. But it's clearly a crucial consideration. But it's crucial because it's embodied in the law of Singapore, which recognizes that after the 24th week, abortion is prohibited. That's where it comes in. And, and Henry has to pay particular attention to the law in making his decision and in thinking about what authority he has to act one way or another. So I'm thinking there about human rights in a very practical way. Some people have developed elaborate theories to give grounds to human rights. I, th I think that that's a phrase that you like. So what are the grounds of human rights, right? When I think about the grounds of human rights, I want to reformulate the question, where am I standing when I think about human rights? That's the ground that I'm interested in. Where am I standing? Am I standing in Singapore where the forms of moral authority around me take one form, one shape, as opposed to standing somewhere else where they would take a different shape? That's what I need to think about. So it's not necessarily that we're at odds with each other, but we're thinking about very different things. And I'd rather think about my thing and let you think about your thing. <laughs> okay, can I just jump in on this though? This is, this is one, I think this is a rich source of disagreement, but this is what I had tried to articulate as well, which is I, I, maybe in part to echo some of what Matthias is saying. I don't think it's quite that clean a division in that I think that embodied agents do have to assess policies in order to at times know what to do. Like I'll just again you go back to like Edward Snowden. Part of what motivated him to act was a normative assessment of the balance between, fair, between uh, security and freedom. He assessed the policies that were going on at that level and then started looking at his options about how to push his agenda given that he viewed this as wrong. But, but you need to have that level of discussion, like is this a just, fair, equitable, e effective policy? 
I think that actual practitioners embedded in real circumstances do need a sort of conceptual framework, a set of argumentative skill set, set to, uh, to do that. In addition to, and that's completely compatible with then, you know, getting down into the specifics of like, where am I? What are, where am I being pulled? Like, what, what are my obligations here and now? How do I work? So, I don't think there's a tension there. <laughs> Yeah, Francis Cam. I teach ethics at the Kennedy School and in FAS at Harvard. Um, I was wondering if we could go back to that chart of the uh, three different types. There was uh, common morality. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I didn't understand some of the things here because under personal, you list certain things that um, <clears throat> conscience. Uh, conscience is an, not a directive or a way of arriving at a view. It is a, uh, a sense of whether you have done the right or wrong. But you have to first have a view about what is right or wrong. Uh, personal ideals you may have, but you have to evaluate whether your ideals are correct or not. Family and associational relationships may be factors that have to be taken into account in deciding whether an action is right or wrong. But it seemed to me that under the personal, what you should emphasize is that the individual may have views about what is right and wrong, taking into account factors maybe that the common public view doesn't take into account and the professional view doesn't take into account. But that this is another segment of trying to decide what the right thing to do is. It doesn't seem to me that focusing on conscience or on the board, you had integrity. I mean, it isn't as though that these were free-floating things that provide answers. It's only once you try to think through, what do I believe is actually right or wrong? What does the public think is right or wrong? What does my code of ethics tell me is right and wrong? So there may be three different views about what is right or wrong, taking into account various different factors. And then the individual has to decide, you know, what weight to give to these various factors. And Pointing to, you know, my conscience bothers me or is inconsistent with my personal ideals doesn't tell us anything yet about whether you should act or not until you evaluate whether your ideals are correct, whether family associations really matter, uh, whether your conscience is in any indication of the truth. You've got to have a substantive view. And so I thought in the first column, rather than pointing to these rather, these, in one case, an additional factor, family and association relations, uh, you have to have uh, not so much a psychology of the individual, but an individual's attempt to get at the right answer. And I was just wondering why that wasn't so, why you made it seem as though, I have to think about, what well, does my conscience bother me? Or is it inconsistent with my personal ideals? When the question is, is my conscience giving me the correct result? Are my personal ideals right? Do family associations really matter? It's always deciding on the normative issue that comes first. This is a kind of fundamental disagreement, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to articulate it very well, but when you think about conscience, I mean, it's not as though we all use the word conscience in the same way, but, but when we think about conscience and ask, um, is what my conscience is telling me right, in some way the answer to that is, well, of course, because my conscience is telling me that thing. So I think what you're doing is you're separating some moral ideas that you may entertain from some kind of assessment that you might make of those ideas. Whereas the way I think about conscience is that you entertain these ideas and you're thinking about them reflectively. And in fact, your conscience is the result of the reflection that you have engaged in. So, of course, your conscience is telling you what you think is right. So, so I, just, I just think there's a kind of, there's a kind of continuity here that, that you are, you are you know, separating and, and, and making it as somehow distinct. The result of normative decision-making, that's one thing. But philosophers have very often said, Elizabeth Anscombe, a philosopher, said, conscience has told many people very bad things. The Nazi officers at uh, Auschwitz, uh, my conscience is clear, yes. um, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, so uh, we have to be worried 
and not think that these are mechanisms for deciding on what is right. There may be results of deciding what's right. You formulate ideals, you form, you know, your conscience will approve of something. But first, the individual in the personal realm, just as in the public and in the professional realm, has to come up with a normative argument for the content of their moral view. That's all I'm it's saying. It's absolutely correct that a conscience may be wrong in somebody else's assessment. Or it may be wrong when judged from the point of view of the public or the professional. But it's always somebody's assessment as to whether conscience is right or wrong. Right? So that's simply part of the process that's going on. It's well, but this, all I'm saying is that when a doctor, for example, feels guilty that they per he's performed or she's performed an abortion, think, feel guilty, conscience bothers you. Before you decide whether to do it or not, you should go back to the normative argument. See whether your grounds for thinking it's right or wrong are correct or incorrect. If you have personal ideals that you think are violated. Sure. The All I'm saying is that comparable to what goes on in the public and professional, there's a content normative basis for all these things in the personal realm. It's only after you reflect and on the normative argument that you should live with what your conscience tells you because it will reflect your normative argument. Henry is my, my example with regard to the abortion issue in the first chapter. Henry is a very reflective individual. He has thought deeply about the abortion issue. He's been influenced by his family and by the church that he belongs to. He gains some of his authority from the church, that is, th authority for his personal view from the church. That's itself an idea we would need to explore, explore further. But, but he's, he's doing all the reflection that you want someone to do, and this is what his conscience tells him. Well, I'm not sure he is doing all the reflection. If he takes authority from the church, but that's another question. Hi, I'm, I'm Bob Kagan, um, who... I'm the guy that Ken referred to earlier as having been associated with the Center for Law and Society in Berkeley. Um, I want to go back to the list of, um, of, of uh, attributes or virtues, as Chris mentioned them. And I wonder whether you deal in the book at all with how people learn these attributes or acquire these attributes. And are there institutional arrangements in a society, in an organization that would lead, that you know, best encourage public officials or people involved in trying to influence public life to acquire those virtues other than taking your course. <laughs> but why did you exclude that? <laughs> well, because they, they can't all take it. <laughs> um, I'm, I mean, I do, you know, um, this is a little bit of uh, excessive pride, perhaps, but I do think that the right kind of ethics course is one way or one key step for developing the kind of sensitivity that, that I have in mind in, in developing these virtues. So, so I do think that's, that's one way to do it. Um, it it's uh, outside of the educational setting, it may be a little harder to think of institutions, but the idea would be to design institutions in such a way that you get people to think about the, these kinds of things. Um, so, so if if the effort is to um, to try to show more respect for individuals um, by enabling them to participate in decision making, so you think you try to think about uh, institutional forms that that make that happen. That 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 people can actually uh, participate in. I'm thinking about things like police academies or ways in which all kinds of officials within large organizations are trained and that you could imagine, and, and many of them do, I think, have some kinds of training in which they're learning something other than simply how to follow the rules and or the technical skills that they need to think about what, how do we think about the hard cases that we encounter or what practices they might institute 
when people encounter hard cases, because it seems to me people don't always act all by themselves when they're reasoning through. Ideally, they find a bunch of colleagues or superiors right. to talk about that right. with. So I, maybe I, I'm not asking your book to do or you to do but, a whole but other I, kind of topic. No, I, I totally agree with that. And, and, but I think it is a question of, of devising the right kind of curriculum uh, for those kinds of institutions. Uh, yeah. Elliot Prager, a uh, former student of Professor Winston. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to risk going from the sublime to the ridiculous and ask you, uh, in a society where a significant portion of the uh, economic and political leaders are sociopaths, how do you, how do you adjust? Um, I'm not sure about sociopaths, but um, you, would, you would find chapter two interesting, uh, The Prison Master's Dilemma, because Khalil um, is in a society, he's, he's a high-level bureaucrat, in the government, in a society in which corruption is pervasive. And, and he's got to figure out whether he can be an effective and, and honest uh, actor uh, within that kind of situation, or, or does he simply have to leave? I mean, is, it, is it just so bad um, that, that it, uh, in order to preserve his own integrity, he's just got to leave? And it's interesting that Khalil went through a certain evolution in, in this regard, because initially he thinks that it's an impossible situation, he can't be effective, um, the best thing is to get out. And gradually he realizes, well, there's, there's a way of being an effective agent, even though he can't get everything he thinks is right, he can't do everything he wants to do, he can do some very positive things if he accommodates himself, if he compromises in certain ways. Now, I, I'm kind of encouraged by the learning that he goes through uh, when he comes, comes to that point. At the same time, I worry about him if he stays too long in that situation. So I'm, I'm feel, I feel a little bit ambivalent because I think those kinds of accommodations are quite crucial in really bad situations. But on the other hand, it's, it's asking quite a lot of an individual to sustain that over a long period of time. Sure, and also, <laughs>